You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. We are in a series in the book of Genesis and uh, been an awesome study. I think we're in our sixth or seventh week. I don't, I don't know for sure, but uh, been amazing. We have gone through the six days of creation. And uh, in the six days of creation, we, got, we saw God speaking the universe into existence. We saw the scientific uh, beauty of God's creation and how the Bible actually complements science. The, 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 the Bible is not a scientific book, but it is scientifically accurate in the things that it says. And, and we've seen that over the week, previous weeks. If you've missed it, you can go back and get those messages. Uh, but now we've moved through the six days of creation. And we saw last Sunday, the last thing God created was marriage. What a great God. Marriage created in the six days of creation. And we saw something spectacular last week. We saw the gospel being foretold. The the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would go to a cross, that he would resurrect. We saw the gospel in the story of the creation of Eve. Just mind-boggling. How so? Well, God made man from the dust of the ground. God made all the animals from the dirt of the ground. He formed and fashioned them. Man, he breathed into man, his spirit, and man became a living being. God then, we saw, makes Eve, and he doesn't make Eve from the dirt. He makes Eve from where? From Adam. And we saw, crazy, why, why? Well, because she's you, Adam. And here it is, the Proto-Evangelium, the the first gospel in the scripture. Here's what it is, a picture of Jesus. You say, how so? Well, Adam was put down. He died. And from his side, God took Eve. And Adam was resurrected. And he finds a beautiful virgin bride, spotless and pure, radiant in glory. And that is a picture of Jesus and the church. Jesus died on the cross. His side was pierced with a sword. Out of the side, the blood and water flowed that cleansed us of our sin. And the bride of Christ was created. He arose three days later, and Ephesians tell us he found a spotless bride without spot or blemish, perfect in beauty, radiant in his holiness, the church born out of the side of Jesus. And so in the gospel from the beginning of time, what do we see? We see the sovereignty of God foretelling what would come centuries, thousands of years later, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we look at the world and the chaos and all that is going on with Russia, Ukraine, with all that's going on, may we know God is sovereign over all. He tells the end from the beginning. At the beginning, he already told the end. And this is uh, the sovereign God. We can rest in his sovereignty. So today we move and we're going to actually back up a little bit. I promised that we would come back to these passages. Genesis chapter 2, find your way, verse 8. Uh, we now are looking at the Garden of Eden. We're going to take a look back and look at what God designed in this garden. Why? Well, for a few reasons. The Garden of Eden reveals the things that are really important to God. The Garden of Eden reveals some details and things that are important to God about our relationship with him. And today, my prayer, God's word at work, that we will leave with a better understanding of what God designed, what God desired when he created you and I. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 8, are you there? Yes. Uh, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Elohim, Yahweh, the covenant name between God and his people. Elohim, the generic name that all people know. Oh God, there's a God, right? Uh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made every tree grow. That is pleasant to the sight. Uh, by the way, is not God's botany just beautiful to behold? I love the colors of spring. I was looking in my backyard yesterday, and I've got these vines, and here they are. I could tell spring's coming. They're starting to bloom, these colors all over them. I love the radiant hues. You look at the flower fields in Carlsbad. They're brilliant colors. Just amazing. Pleasant to the eyes. Pleasant to the sight, it says. Also good for food. Uh, it, again, God's way is just amazing, right? I marvel at it. If you ever, I, I hope you can walk through an orchard sometime. It's almost mystical. You walk through an orange orchard and there's these ton, these orange trees just planted every 10 feet. And, and they're just head high. Tons of oranges just hanging there, right? I mean, just amazing. Uh, I love God's design, the green pears, the, the almond trees. I mean, just amazing how he does it, right? The orange oranges, the red apples. Uh, pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. What is that? We'll unpack that in just a minute. And then look at this tree. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to underline the name of that tree. And I want you to tell me the name of that tree. Let's say it out loud. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Say it one more time with me. I want you, I want you to think about it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very important. Uh, we'll unpack that in a minute. Verse 10. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. 
Right now, we realize something. We've just been told something. This is no backyard garden. Four riverheads in this garden? This is a garden the size of a country. This is a big garden. This is God's garden. And he's placed man in it. Look at this. This fountain in it that became four riverheads. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Uh, now, uh, do not try to go figure out on a map where the Garden of Eden was. Because you can't. Uh, we believe that the land was one continent before the flood. And we'll study this when we get to Genesis 6. But at the flood, God broke up the fountains of the deep. And tremendous geological changes happened. The whole earth underwater. Uh, the earth in upheaval. Uh, the, the, the Pangea, the, the continents drifting. Uh, and everything has changed. This is a description before all of that. And so we can't know for sure exactly where this is. But notice what it says uh, the land was full of gold verse 12 and the gold of that land was good uh, I don't know what bad gold is but this, this gold was really good uh, probably very plentiful as well, as well. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there Bedellium is a uh, in modern Bedellium is a resin that is uh, uh, a golden color, kind of like honey, and it is translucent. Um, onyx stones have all different kinds of colors, and they also are translucent. In the book of Ezekiel, it talks about Eden, and it lists all kinds of stones, ruby, sapphire, all kinds of stones, and all of them are translucent. And so it's describing these stones littered on the ground in this Garden of Eden. Uh, verse 13, the name of the second river was Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Uh, we don't know where those two rivers are today. Again, with the changes in geography, uh, we don't know. Uh, verse 14, the name of the third river was the Hittichel. Or in Latin, the Tigris. We do know where that river is. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Oh, we know where this river is. This river is about 672 miles from Jerusalem. In modern day, Iraq. And so we see after Pangea, oh, we know the general area, but obviously very different. But uh, uh, this Garden of Eden was the very center of the world. And out of it, a giant fountain flowing into four giant rivers. And this was the garden that God made for man. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Think about it. Every tree that was pleasant to the eyes, every tree that was good for food, every strawberry bush, every orange tree, everything that got me, you can eat every tree in the entire world. It's all yours, Adam and Eve, enjoy. But look at this. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, say it with me, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Underline the word in verse 16, the Lord God commanded them. Underline commanded. It is the first time in the Bible the word command is given. There is one command. And it's do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat everything. Uh, we're going to look at uh, this in detail when Adam and Eve fall next week. Uh, and the ramifications, you're going to be blown away. Um, uh, I can't wait to get into next week's study with you. Uh, but here we see this beautiful garden that God created. And the abundant blessings that he gave man. And all the freedom. You can do anything you want in the whole world. You can make love. You can travel. You can ride the giraffe. You can ride the zebra. You can chase a T-Rex. You can do whatever you want. There's one command I don't want you to do. And we'll look at that. But before we do, I want you to see this. I want you to see the majesty and the splendor of this. God himself planted a garden for Adam and Eve. God himself planted a garden. What does it look like when God plants a garden, man? I mean, I've seen some nice gardens that men have done. What does it look like when the creator plants himself a garden. And why did he plant it? Well, he, because he desires fellowship with man. Here we see this is God's will. These verses reveal a lot about God's purpose in creating man, about God's desire, about God's dream, about God's vision. God wanted man to commune with God. Where? In a garden. And not just any garden, man. This place was lush. We often think that it is our desire to know God and our will to seek God and that, you know, we're looking for him. We often think that we're the ones desiring a relationship with him. But I want you to know, we see here clearly, this was God's desire. I made the whole earth for man and gave it to him and told him to rule over it. But I made man for me and I want to have this relationship with him in a garden and walk with him and be with him in the cool of the day and, and just enjoy this fellowship. Can you imagine? Uh, God has good plans for us. God did not place Adam and Eve in a desert. He placed them in a garden. And I want you to know, if you are hesitant about really committing yourself entirely to God, because I'm afraid, I mean, he'd probably send me as a missionary in the Sudan somewhere, and I don't want to go to Sudan or Zimbabwe. I mean, I just know, no, 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 no. God has good plans for you. 
And he doesn't have bad things for you. He wants to bless you. This garden was his idea. This garden was his desire. And his ways are really good. And I want you to just begin to dream for a moment. I'm going to try to illustrate this. I want you to imagine, to just just dream, what was God's garden like? In this garden, we read there was this spring that was no little spring. It was a spring so massive that it created four rivers, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and two. I mean, this is a massive spring, man. This is a nice garden fountain, huh? I mean, what the heck? Uh, On the ground. The ground was littered with all kinds of precious stones. Even gold just littered on the ground. Uh, uh, Bdellium, the onyx stone, rubies, diamonds, sapphire, just littered on the ground. How incredible. And we know that God would walk, we're going to learn this next week in chapter 3, that God would walk and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Wow. Now, God is a spirit. What does it mean that he walked and talked with him? Well, it's figurative that he walked, but his presence was manifest there. Well, what do we know about God's presence? Well, the Bible tells us God is light. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, the brightness of his coming will be seven times brighter than the noonday sun. That's pretty dang bright. Right now, if you go outside in the middle of the day, can you see any stars? No. Why? Are they there? Yes. Why can't you see them? The brightness of the sun overpowers the the light of the stars. When Jesus returns, the brightness of his radiant glory will overpower the sun. Saul of Tarsus, when Jesus appeared to him in glory, it was at noon, and the radiant glory of Jesus' appearing blinded Saul. He was so radiant and bright. And Saul was blind. Jesus healed him later, days later. But uh, uh, that's how bright Jesus is. Uh, Psalm 104 reveals uh, this brightness of of God. Uh, Let me hear you read this. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. Oh, the psalmist writes, God, you're so glorious and majestic. You are clothed in light. And the universe is just like a tent to you. Popped up. His magnificent power, his radiant glory. This is who he is. And can you begin to catch the vision of what the garden of God must have looked like? 
These translucent stones on the ground, the radiant glory of God in the presence, these stones illuminating and reflecting, refracting light. Oh, it must have been glorious. How amazing this garden. We read, by the way, in heaven that we read some of these same attributes. That the streets of heaven are what? Gold. But not gold like what we have. This gold is so pure, it's actually transparent. And the gates are of pearl, but not the pearl that we have, a actual transparent pearl. And that there's these uh, beautiful uh, translucent gates and all to refract the Shekinah glory of God's light. Wow. We read in the Old Testament about the high priest thousands of years later after Adam and Eve he had a breastplate on his chest. On his chest 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel on his chest. All of the 12 stones translucent, one for each of the tribes of Israel. A great picture, by the way, helps me be a good pastor. Israel on the heart of the high priest. Every time the priest would move, he'd have Israel on his heart. And there was something divine in the scripture. It was called the Urim and Thummim. And we don't know exactly what it is because we've never seen it. But the Hebrew words Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfections. And it is believed that the high priest would inquire, the king would come to the high priest, he would pray, he would ask the high priest to pray, the high priest would pray on behalf of the king, and God would speak through the Urim and Thummim, and it is believed that he would do so, lights and perfections, by illuminating one of the twelve stones in radiant glory on the high priest's chest. Taking us back to Eden. What must it have looked like to be in the presence of God with his radiant glory shining and revealing through these translucent stones? And this was everyday life for Adam and Eve as they walked with God in the cool of the day. We read that man, that, that we, that those who've been in the presence of God, that they reveal the, they display the Shekinah glory of God. We read that when God's presence came down upon the tabernacle, that the glory of the Lord filled the place so much that people couldn't even behold it. We read of Moses who said, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God said, sorry, Moses, can't happen. Why? You're a sinner. And if a sinner comes into the presence of my glory, he will be consumed. It is too awe-inspiring, too holy. 
Moses pleaded, Lord, please, I want to know more of you. I want more of you. And God said, Moses, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. A foreshadow of the cross, by the way, the rock that was cleft. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33. And I will have my glory pass by while you're hidden in the cleft of the rock. And after I pass by, I will uncover you from the rock and you can come out and you will see my glory after it's already gone. And so that happens. And Moses sees God's glory after it's left. And just the trail of God's glory is so radiant that Moses is in awe. Just worships in awe. And Moses comes down from the mountain after God's glory has already passed. And he doesn't even know it, but his face is what? He's glowing. He's radiating the glory of God. So much so that the people, Israel, they look at him and they say, Moses, your countenance is too bright. Put a veil on. We can't behold the glory. And that was only, Mo- that was only God's glory after it passed. And Moses was a sinner. He couldn't even be in the presence of God's glory. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve looked like? Oh my gosh. Dwelling in the presence of God's glory. The Shekinah glory illuminating the stones littered all over the Garden of Eden. The gold, the sapphire, the the onyx, the the bedellium. Just wow. It must have been amazing. And this was God's desire for man. This was everyday life. How glorious, how radiant, how incredible. What it must have looked like. Again, the Bible describing this radiant glory, it talks about Lucifer. Lucifer? The name means illuminated one. We have the word lucent that comes from it. Illuminated one. What, where was he illuminated by? Dwelling in God's presence. Look what Ezekiel talks about him in Ezekiel 28. This is God speaking to Lucifer after he fell. Read with me in a unified voice. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond. By the way, all those stones were what? His covering. He was illuminated with the radiant glory of God, right? Uh, Let's go on. The barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. For the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were created to be in my presence. I clothed you with radiant stones that would reflect the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And you were Lucifer, the illuminated one, because you dwelt in my presence. Wow. Wow. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Who covers what? Well, we know from the tabernacle who covers 
the very throne room of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Lucifer was one of the cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. I established you. I gave you that position. It was me who gave you that capacity, the ability, the giftings to be that, that, uh, that being. Uh, let's go on. You were on the holy mountain of God. And look at this. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. The stones weren't fiery in of themselves. What made them fiery? The radiant glory of God. When you have a diamond and you go into a jewelry store, where do they put that baby? Right under the black, uh, on a black velvet, under the bright light. Why? Because it's a fiery stone. And when the light shines on it, it refracts all the colors and the beauty that are in light. Take a look at the color around the room right now. That color is not actually the color, scientists tell us. It's actually light and the way that your clothing is ref reflecting, refracting the different light is what gives it the color. Light gives the color. And the glory is in the light, not in the stone. The stone just reflects the glory. You were perfect in all your ways. You walked amongst the far east stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created. Twice it says that uh, Lucifer, you did not make yourself. You are a created being till iniquity was found in you. Are you catching the picture of this garden? Are you understanding the glory that God made for man to dwell in his presence? Are you understanding what God wanted Adam and Eve to be as they were clothed and radiated the very glory of God? Church, can I tell you something? You were created to be a vessel of glory. Wow. You were created to reflect God's glory, God's image, and you were created to display his glory. This is his purpose for you. Put that next slide up for me, if you will. This is what you were created for. And I want you to think about this. Uh, you were created to reflect God's glory, to reveal his nature. And for Adam and Eve, it did not happen by might nor by power, but by God's spirit, says the Lord. In other words, how hard did they have to work at reflecting God's glory? They didn't. What did they have to do? They just had to dwell in God's presence. And the radiant glory of God would be revealed in them. And the same is true for you and I. It is God who says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
Just spend time with me. Just walk with me. Just dwell in my presence. And you will reflect my glory in the way that you love others. In the way that you speak to others. In the wisdom that you impart to others. In the understanding that you have of a young child's heart. In the understanding that you have of a yelling, screaming neighbor. At the understanding and patience and wisdom that you have with a worker in your company. Uh, just walk with me and my glory will radiate out of your life. This is God's will for us. This is his design. This is his desire. We glorify God simply by dwelling in his presence and delighting in who he is. His name is Jesus and he is radiant. I hope you know him. Amen. And it is such a natural thing. I look at... at I love watching the hawks soar in the sky. You've probably heard me talk about them before. And I'll just stand there and I'll watch them soar so effortlessly. And when I look at them, uh, they bring glory to God. Question for you. Does the hawk know he's bringing glory to God? No, he's just doing what he's supposed to do. I love going to the beach with my wife at sunset. And I love watching the sun begin to set. I love when the water's glassy and sparkly. Uh, and the, it's just a calm day. And the sun sets with all the hues, with all the, the beautiful, radiant colors. And the water sparkling. And it's revealing the glory of God. Do you think it knows it's doing it? No, it's just doing what it was created to do. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens, the universe, declares the glory of God. It just does what it's supposed to do. Now, these things reveal God's glory as a creator, as an artist. You were designed to, create, to reveal God's glory as a person. As a personality as a as a as a being you were created to reveal his love his kindness his grace his mercy his wisdom his foresight his god chose you to reveal his glory and it happens by abiding in him you were created to be a vessel of glory but know this know this the radiant glory that we are to bear is not ours, but God's. It is God's glory. And this is where Lucifer stumbled and fell desperately. He wanted the glory to be whose? His own. And the moment that happens, you're separated from the glory of God and you self-destruct. Same thing happened to Judas. Judas knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was only following him for his own glory, to sit in a position of power, and he fell miserably. 
King Saul started off so well. He was in awe that God chose him to be king. And he started well glorifying God. But when the crown was placed on his head, the crown literally went to his head and he sought his own glory and he fell miserably. You were created for glory. You were created to reveal the radiant glory of God as you spend time with him. Uh, You were meant to be uh, uh, one who displays the glory of God. But we must remember it is God's glory. And if you try to embrace it through fame, power, or glory, whatever, you will stumble miserably and fail miserably. Humans long for the glory of God. Do you know why? Because we were created to display it. I want you to consider how people who have wealth and and, and ability, how they are clamoring and clawing and groping for glory. Want a picture of it? Here it is. This is a typical performance. This happens to be an American Idol uh, stage, but it doesn't matter. You could do any concert anywhere, any movie star anywhere, and we do this. Look what it is. It's radiant lights and diamonds and Why do they all seek the same glory? They lay out red carpets. They put on precious stones. They shine illuminating lights. All because they're trying to get back to Eden. To the very thing that they were created for. Problem? They're doing it the wrong way. They're doing it all for their glory, which is mechanical and fake. And it will never sustain you. But it shows the longing that is in the human soul. Because we were created for this glory. And it's interesting, isn't it? How they all do the same stuff, man. The same stuff. Trying to get back to God's garden. I want you to know we are so desiring it that even in our homes, we innately grope trying to return to the Garden of Eden experience. We spend fortunes trying to create a beautiful backyard garden of rest. In our backyard garden, we build gardens with pools, with fountains, with lounge areas, areas for our family to gather and eat. Why? Why do we do all this? Where do we get? Oh, yeah, I want to put a nice fountain here. And I want, why? Where? Where does that all come from? Our desire. It's part of us. We were made for it. And we're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. Now, nothing wrong with having a a nice backyard garden. I'm not against that. But I want you to know something. As beautiful as the real Garden of Eden was, and it was beautiful, as lush and brilliant as it was, what made it radiant was God. What made it glorious was God's presence. And all of the stones and all of the fountainheads that go into four rivers and everything, without God's presence, it's just geography. 
What made it a Garden of Eden was the glory of God's presence being there. And the same is true today. We can create a backyard resort in our attempt to get back to Eden. But unless God's presence is there, it will leave us empty and futile. I know men. I know families who are very wealthy. They even have a Rancho Santa Fe backyard. It is quite glorious. There are lavish pools. There are fountains. There are beautiful plants. There is stuff littered all over the place. But they can't even enjoy it. And the pool boy spends more time in the pool than the owner. Because God's presence is not there. Lisa and I have a very modest backyard garden. Every Sunday we have our kids over. We barbecue and have a feast. We play backyard games. And it is an amazing place because God's presence is there. Not because of anything of my greatness. Oh no, I am a sinful man. But because I have chosen to respond to Jesus' great love for me. And by his grace and by his work on the cross, I have been saved and transformed. And because of what he did for me, I have his presence in my backyard. And there are times that I sit at that dinner table with my family in my humble little backyard, this little garden, and I feel like the richest man in the world because my wife loves me, my kids respect me, we have great relationships together, and they take time out of their busy week to come over and just be together. And what makes it amazing is not the food, is not the table, or is not the grass. It's God's presence is there. This is God's will for us. And this is what he brings, has created us for. Uh, I want you to know, it's not gardens that we long for. It's God himself. Our sin has separated us from God's presence. And Jesus can bring us back into God's presence. A bigger backyard will not fix our problem. Moving to Rancho Santa Fe will not fix our problem. People getting restless now and moving to different states, that will not fix your problem. It's all just geography unless God's presence is there. It's God we are longing for, and only Jesus can take our garden and make it a garden of Eden. Our home and make it a home of blessing. The Bible says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. But when the Lord builds the house, oh, it's magnificent. I want you to know Jesus went through great lengths to allow us to be brought back in to his presence. 
knowing the pain and the sin, uh, the, that, the pain and the sorrow that sin has brought to us, Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment of all of our sin that we might come to him and have our sins forgiven and enter back into God's presence so that we can behold his glory and radiate it in our lives. And if you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you are uh, still trying on your own steam to get there, uh, you're just trying to build bigger gardens. But think of all that we do to try to somehow show our glory. We spend money and buy houses that we can't afford. We buy cars that we can't. We make payments. We put ourselves in great debt. And we work harder and harder and harder to actually have some glory in our life. But it is all folly because only Jesus Christ can restore to us what has been lost Isaiah puts it so well as he describes this Isaiah 55 uh, let me hear you read this uh, let's read together Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. First word, ho. It means pay attention. It means now hear this. Come, right? Uh, look what he says. Let's go on. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Hey, did that Tesla do it for you? It's now 18 months old. Did it do it for you? I didn't think so. And that house won't either. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what will not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Look at the superlative language God is trying to get us to grasp. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. This is what he wants for us. Let's go on. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Come, I will heal you. I will give you the worth you're looking for. My glory will be revealed in your life. I will heal you and satisfy your soul. I will give you an everlasting covenant, the sure mercies of David. What is that? The promise of the Messiah who will restore and cleanse us of our sin and impart to us his righteousness as a free gift. If you have not done so, I want you to give your life to Jesus Christ. It'll be the greatest thing you will have ever done and you will become a vessel of his glory. If you'd like to do so, speak with us after the service and we will pray with you and help you in your first steps. Um, I want to move uh, a little further. We've got some ground to cover and the clock is burning. Uh, I want you to notice, I want you to see uh, this beautiful creation that God made, us dwelling in his presence, raiding with glory, and then God gives us an assignment. God gives us a divine purpose in his kingdom. He says, I want you to tend and keep the garden. God gives us purpose in his kingdom. 
Work is good for our soul. We are created to be active and to be serving. I want you to know in heaven, you're not going to be floating around on clouds playing a harp going, how long do I have to string this thing? No, no, no. You are going to be busy. You're going to be given a lot to do. Jesus, when he was here on earth, yeah, 12 years old, his parents lost him. It was the feast of Passover. And after they were leaving the feast of Passover, they look at each other and they're like, hey, been a couple days. Where's our kids? I thought you had them. No, I thought you had them. Oh. Very symbolic, by the way. They lost the Messiah in Passover. You can lose the Messiah in Easter. Where is he? They go looking for him. Good thing to do, to look for the Messiah at Passover, at Easter. Good thing to do. They go back looking for him. When they find the 12-year-old Jesus, what did he say? Why were you worried? Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? There is work to do in God's kingdom. And he calls us to do it with him. Adam and Eve, welcome to your garden. Now, I invite you to tend it and to take care of it with me. Oh, how awesome. What an amazing God. God created us to be contributors in his kingdom, to be participants, not spectators. And church, I want you to know, in the church in the United States today, too many Christians are spectators and not participants. Get off your butt and be a tender of God's garden. And you will find incredible purpose and joy. This is God's ways. Don't be merely a spectator viewing the show. And that's what happens. We come to church. Well, how was worship? Well, worship was all right. I'll give worship a seven. How was the message? Well, well, the message was okay. I'll give it a, feeling generous, a five. (laughs) And the donuts, well, the donuts were, I'll give the donuts an eight. And the coffee, the coffee was a 10. The coffee was good, yeah. What are you doing? Quit judging everything and start tending the garden. Are you? Are you showing the love of Jesus? Are you radiating the glory of God when you go to work on Monday morning? Bring someone a sandwich in the name of Jesus. Give someone a card with a generous gift card inside it. For no reason in the name of Jesus. Show a, take a grouchy neighbor, a beautiful plant in the name of Jesus. Have compassion on a broken soul in the name of Jesus. Get out there and tend the garden and watch God's glory radiate through your life. This is his will. This is his purpose. God wants to be participants on his team. May we be busy tending the garden. Because being idle is incredibly damaging to our soul. Many Christians wilting and perishing, not experiencing the abundant glory of God in their lives because they're not tending the garden. 
The Bible warns us of being idle. It has a lot to say. Look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Thessalonians, by the way, was written a letter written to a church in Thessalonica. That's where the name comes from. And so this is a letter to the church. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. What does admonish mean? Give them some guidance and instruction. They're on the wrong path. Uh, uh, admonish them. Guide them, right? Encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, yo, we encourage those who are just hurting, the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. Great instruction, but it's not okay to be idle. Right now, I'm admonishing you who are idle. Knock it off. Knock it off. And get your butt in gear and start serving your king. Start tending the garden and watch your life flourish. Here's another one in Second Thessalonians. Uh, let me hear you read this. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Huh? What? What is that? I thought if anyone was not willing to work... You give them unemployment and EBT. <laughs> not in God's kingdom. God says if anyone's not willing to work, I got a solution. Don't let them eat. They'll be working very quickly. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to feed the poor? Absolutely. But we're not supposed to enable the poor to be poor forever. We're to feed them and help them when they're down and out and to show them the right path and to guide them and help them get on their feet. Absolutely. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness and instead of being busy at work, they're busy bodies. That's the problem. The moment that you are not building the kingdom, you now become a busy body. Well, did you hear what they did? Did you see what they did? I can't believe he did that. Can you believe? I'm not, I don't like them. <laughs> You're a busy body. Shut the heck up. Get to work. Go plant, go pull some weeds, go tend the garden, right? Uh, let's go on before I get in trouble. Now, such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Go be a kingdom builder and show the glory of God to all those around you. It's been said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And in the Christian church nationwide, there's a lot of idle hands. Um, God wants us to be contributors in his kingdom. Participants, not spectators. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's really embrace it. May we hold on to it, man. May we, may we really tend the garden. It brings joy to our soul. I was talking with a woman this week. Uh, uh, she is a, a, a phenomenal uh, leader in the church. I just love her. And uh, she said, I remember uh, when I would busy my days with going to Target and Hobby Lobby, and Nordstrom Rack, and getting new decorations, and just, I was all about that, and she says, it was all just futility. Now I am building God's kingdom, I am pouring into others, I am, and, and my life is so full, she tells me, and I love her, 
I just love watching God work in her life. Her name, Amy Mancini. She's our children's director. She just, everywhere she goes, she reveals the glory of Jesus to others. I love it. And uh, this is what God wants to do in all of our life. Now, I want to use the last part of our time to look at this fascinating story, this fascinating garden that God made. There were uh, four categories of trees that God made. Did you notice them? Four categories. Let's get them on the screen. Trees that were, read it with me, pleasant to the sight. Well, oh, no, slow down, slow down. Uh, pleasant to the sight. Yeah, we talked about that, right? Uh, the redwoods, uh, majestic. There, the cedars in the Garden of Eden were there. Just wow. And you look at them, and they're just, wow, they're pleasant to the sight. Lisa and I went and saw the Redwoods uh, last year. And we're just like, wow. You know, I mean, just massive. And you're walking along, and it's hot outside. You go see a tree, and you just go, oh, it's just pleasant to the sight. And you go sit in that shade. Just good, right? Just good. Now, question for you. God made trees that were pleasant to the sight. Who was that for? What was that for? I'll give you the answer. It was for our good and God's glory. Okay? I want you to say that for me. God made trees that are pleasant to the sight. Who is that for? Our good and God's glory. God then makes trees that are good for food. Just amazing, right? Uh, pistachios. Growing on a tree. Almonds. Growing on a tree. Oranges, plums, I mean, just amazing, good for food. Who is that for? That is for our good and for God's glory. Avocados, amen. <laughs> now we look at a tree of life. A tree of life. What is a tree of life? Well, these next two trees are literal, physical trees, but these next two trees, categories of trees, have spiritual implications. A tree of life. The Bible tells us a little bit about this tree of life. It's mentioned three times in Genesis and three times in Revelation. It's mentioned four times in Proverbs, but always allegorically, uh, like this, in other words. He who speaks kind words is a tree of life, but he who curses is poison to the soul. Uh, that's it, using it idiomatically, so it's not really telling us anything about it. But in the book of Revelation, it tells us a little bit about it, and here in, in the uh, Genesis, it tells us about it. And this tree was used, made by God, to enhance health of the physical body. And to give it to the ability to live forever. Kind of amazing. Now to you health food gurus, be careful of slippery vitamin salesmen who want to tell you they have some vitamin that is the tree of life. I mean, no, no, that tree's gone. Gone. That's not gone forever, but it's gone right now. Uh, so stay away from that. Uh, again, uh, why did God make the tree of life? For our good and for God's glory. Uh, by the way, after the fall, which we're going to look at next week, fascinating study next week. Don't miss it, man. I can't wait to look at it with you. Uh, some deep, 
uh, theological truths that are going to come out of it that will radically impact your life. Um, but after the fall, God removed man from having the ability to partake of the tree of life. Why? Because if man partook of the tree of life in his fallen state, he would live forever in a sin nature with no with no hope of ever getting rid of this futility and this bondage of our sinful flesh that we live in. And so the moment man, man sinned, God removed the tree of life, uh, or removed man's access to it. Uh, the good news is, in Revelation 22, uh, God is going to bring back the tree of life again, and uh, we'll be able to partake of it. Um, <clears throat> But I want to move our, 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 our last bit of our time to this tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, say the name of the tree with me one more time. I want you to think about that name. It is the most fascinating tree of all the trees. It is the most fascinating conception. A truly brilliant design. It was Adam and Eve's only prohibition. You can do anything on the earth you want. You can make love. You can ride a donkey. You can climb a giraffe. You can play with a T-Rex. You can do whatever you want. Just don't do this one thing. Do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What? Why? Why ruin the whole thing? You got this beautiful garden. Why ruin the whole thing? What was the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was for what purpose? For our good and for God's glory? No. The trees that were pleasant to the sight, the trees that are good for food, the trees that are good of life, good tree of life, they were created for our good and for God's glory. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was created for God's good and for God's glory. In other words, this tree was really important to God. This tree was important to him. Why? Well, because God made man, we're told, a mago day in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. One of the things it means is that man is a free moral agent. God is a free moral agent. He can decide what he wants to do, and he can make whatever choice he wants, and he gives man that same ability. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God created it for a very specific purpose. And here is the purpose. God created Adam with the capacity to comprehend God's love. God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to give Adam and Eve the ability to respond to God's love. Without it, there was no ability for them to not participate in the relationship with God. God created the tree of knowledge of good and evil to give Adam and Eve the, response, the ability to respond to God's love. And this is God's will for us.
In order for love to be, a, uh, to be real, in order for it to be a genuine, meaningful expression, uh, we have to have the ability to care about what the person we love cares about. By definition, love is valuing what the other person values. That is the very definition of love. It's caring about what the other person cares about. If my wife loves me, she's not going to have lunch with another man. No, no, no. That's a value that's important to me. And if she loves me, she's going to carry it and uphold that value. The tree of knowledge of good and evil gave man the ability to respond to God's love. We'll look more at that next week. I want to finish just a couple more minutes with you. And I want to look at now the name of this tree. Why did God give it this crazy name that I've made you say a couple times and underline? It's that important. The tree, what was its name? The knowledge of good and evil. And yet they gain no knowledge of good from it. It would be far better to name the tree. God, I think you made a mistake. Uh, It'd be far better to name the tree the tree of knowledge of evil because that's all they got from it. But God doesn't make mistakes. And God chose to give it this name. And here's what I want you to grasp. Here's what I want you to understand. This tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge means something different than you think it does in its usage here. This, this, this word means knowing or deciding. And here's what God is saying. Do not decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. The token of our relationship will be do not decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Why? Because you're not any good at it. (laughs) You will make wrong decisions. There is a deceiver who will trick you to believe that things that are evil are actually good. And therefore, as a token of our relationship, if you want to participate in a relationship with me, do not decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. We still partake of that tree today. Two young people... Oh, we're in love. Oh, we're attractive. Oh, we got hormones. Oh, I want you. You want me. We love each other. I don't see anything wrong with it. I think it's good. No, God said it's not. And there's a reason. There's an in-depth reason that's really valuable. We don't have time to go into. But what, what do we do? No, I think it's good. Just do it. What are we partaking of? The tree of knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil. Deciding for ourselves what is right or what is wrong. I want you to know Vladimir Putin is invading Ukraine and he thinks it's a what? Good, I think, a good thing to do. This is the right thing. This is actually good. They're the ones that are wrong. Stalin. You read his journal, you read his diary. He thought he was doing good in starving people. Wow. This week, Chuck Schuler on Monday, 
on the Senate floor. The first gathering, the first vote after the Ukraine war. Here, we got some big issues to deal with, right? What do we bring to the Senate floor? The full abortion bill. That you can get an abortion at any term and the ninth month and the last day and have it be paid for by the government. He thought it was that important to bring that to the Senate floor on the first day back during the Ukraine crisis. What we, the biggest thing we have to deal with is this. He thought it was good. When we sin, we sin because we think it is good. I'm going to tell this lie because it's no big deal. No big deal. I mean, well, I know I treat them that way. They did this and this. What are you doing? We are partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are deciding for ourselves what is good, what is evil, and we're not capable to do so. Um, Making Jesus the Lord of our life means we no longer decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. It means that what Jesus says is good is what we do. And that his thoughts become my thoughts and his views become my views. That's what it means to be, uh, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Isaiah would say, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And who say darkness is light and light is darkness. God says, woe to you. And if you want to be in a relationship with your creator, if you want to be a keeper of the ground, that he, the garden that he has given you, if you want his glory to shine in and through you, there is one command that he gives us. Do not decide for yourself what is good, what is evil. Instead, let God decide. And now walk in that. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.